Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Hay Festival podcast, where we're sharing some of the best events from our recent festivals with the world's greatest writers and thinkers, as well as behind the scenes chats to learn more about their private inspirations and interests. Today, we're spending time with the 2021 Man Booker Prize winner, Damon Galgut, who discusses his prize-winning book, The Promise, with author Elizabeth Day. But first, I join Damon to talk about where he draws inspiration for his writing. He was very jet-lagged at Hay Festival this year, so I was thrilled to be able to get five minutes with him. He begins by recalling how his peers would have described him when he was a child. Wow. I think they'd have described me as reclusive. Um... The unkind ones might have thought I was unfriendly um, and generally probably, you know, brainy and bookish and odd. One's eccentricities eventually find their place and uh, be not, become normalised. So, you know, what, what better place to be a writer than in Hay, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like you're, you're quite an observant person? Um, I think the truth is, in certain ways, I'm very unobservant. I mean, I am notorious for not noticing what people are wearing, what colour their cars are, or the, you know, the make of cars, which are details that lots of writers would pick up, I think, pretty much instantly. Um, but I do think I'm very observant about aspects of human behaviour. Um, while people are noticing car colours, I'm noticing, mm, you know, other revealing details like who repeats what words, who laughs at certain things, who doesn't laugh at certain things, um, which, you know, are clues to a whole other area of human life that um, are worth attention, you know, is worth attention, I think. And your schedule obviously now is, is all over the place, I'm sure, since, particularly since the prize last year. Um, what do you do when you're trying to relax? <laughs> I dimly remember those days. Um, <laughs> Well, I read, for one thing. Um, there's nothing quite like the pleasure of sinking into um, the pages of a book for a long, extended period. Um, I try to climb Table Mountain once a week, which is, well, it's exercise, but it's also very relaxing for the mind. Um, and I'm also very, very good at doing nothing, um, which is a, a skill that... Um, some may consider a dying art, but which I think I've brought to a pitch of perfection. It's really interesting. I had a, someone said to me recently about that it's such an interesting phrase that we use a lot here, which is, how do you spend your time? Mm. And it's this idea of time as like a currency. Um, and if you're not doing something useful with it, it's right. a waste. So yeah. It's, it's interesting, the art of doing nothing. Yeah. Um, how, how did you master that? Oh, it came, it came naturally. <laughs> Actually, I think it sort of comes naturally in a certain sense to writers. Um, they appear to be doing nothing, but they're in fact thinking. And thinking about writing, thinking about the book you want to shape, uh, is a very, very vital part of the process. It took me a long time to accept that that thinking was acceptable. I mean, there's such an emphasis placed on being active all the time. But, of course, there are different kinds of activity and um, those silent periods of reflection um, are really what make a book. Um, the writing is what follows on. Do you feel like uh, there are any interests in your life now that you could see ending up in future work? Could you make any predictions of that? No, you see, I, I tend to think that um, that's skimming off the surface of your life and it's not really where books come from, not for me. Um, you know, uh, 
being obsessed about activities or particular events. I mean, it's important in a certain way, but where writing comes from for me is somewhere, oh, I don't want to sound pretentious, but a bit deeper, shall we say. Um, it's a preoccupation with whatever um, is really concerning your life at this time. So I can say, for example, the, the promise arose out of reflecting on aging, um, which led me to considering the passing of time and what it means. Um, and then, of course, that sort of takes shape in the form of a book. But um, the super superficial events of, this, of, of the story are entirely fictional and almost arbitrary. Um, you can bestow them at a, at a later point, but you have to know what your your real subject is, your themes, and, and that's, that comes from a level um, which has nothing to do with activity, uh, at least in my opinion. After our chat, Damon went on stage with Elizabeth Day to discuss the promise in more detail. He starts with a reading. Not a very revealing passage necessarily, but it, it comes uh, from the first section of the book and will at least give some flavour of the youngest sister Amor and the eldest brother Anton, who are, at least in my mind, um, the two opposing poles of the novel, and in some ways probably the two opposing poles of my own psyche. Amor is 13 years old. History has not yet trod on her. She has no idea what country she's living in. She has seen black people running away from the police because they're not carrying their passbooks and heard adults talking in urgent, low voices about riots in the townships. And only last week at school, they had to learn a drill about hiding under tables in case of attack. And still, she doesn't know what country she's living in. There's a state of emergency, and people are being arrested and detained without trial. And there are rumors flying around, but no solid facts, because there is a blackout on news, and only happy, unreal stories are being reported but she mostly believes these stories. She saw her brother's head bleeding yesterday from a rock, but still, even now, she doesn't yet know who threw the rock or why. Blame it on the lightning. She's always been a slow child. <coughs> One thing, though, perturbs her. But why, she says. Why did you tell Pa to give Salome her house if you knew he couldn't? He shrugs. Because he says. I felt like it. And it's exactly then, in the tiniest way, without even knowing it herself, that she begins to understand what country she's living in. The next day, she's dispatched with her suitcase back to the hostel. Just for a few months more, Pa tells her when she tries to protest, till things settle down, she knows better than to argue. She can hear from his voice that it's useless even though he promised, and a Christian never goes back on his word. Her needs are minor, she doesn't matter. So Lexington drives her to the school and drops her by the fish pond, and she must slowly ascend the narrow stairs to the dormitory with its cold linoleum floors, the beds in their regulated rows, identical, and hers in the corner, unchanged. Her brother leaves the next morning, or... Is it the morning after that? The early hours are all alike in the springtime. He carries his military bag and his rifle, and he wears his uniform, ironed for him by Salome, though he's polished the boots himself. 
Nobody there to see him off. Astrid is asleep, and Pa has already gone to the reptile park to work. Lexington brings the triumph to the front steps, and Anton loads his bag into the boot, keeps his rifle with him for the look of it, just in case. Goodbye, house. Goodbye, Pa, though you will not answer. Dawn is welling up like a wound as they dance down the track. Anton gets out to open and close the gate, and then they head off, away from the city, on lonely roads. I'll leave it there. Beautiful. Thank you. Dawn is welling up like a wound. What, what a phrase. You hear there Amor's innocence and that she was struck by lightning as a child. And so there's this degree to which her innocence is perceived, perhaps wrongly, as slowness. And a lot of your novels contend with that kind of push and pull between innocence, idealism, and realism. I'm thinking of The Good Doctor in particular. How much do you think that is a function of being South African? Well, very much, I would, I would imagine. Um, I guess I'm drawing on the sense of being born into this racist system which you don't understand is racist or unjust and in fact is taught to you by everyone around you, your family first and foremost, but then by larger social circles, your school and you know, the, the bigger society that you enter. It's taught to you as normal or necessary. Um, and of course, as a child, you accept what's taught to you. you. You take it at face value. And in a certain sense, growing up in South Africa, if, if you are going to have any sort of awareness, um, well, I should speak in the past tense, I guess, because at least some things have changed. If you were going to have any sort of awareness of the unjustness of that system, you had to unlearn the things that had been taught to you. So in a, in a certain sense... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a loss of innocence, really. Um, you know, knowledge, eating of the tree of good and evil in order to understand what those mean. Mm. And in unlearning, are you also distancing yourself from your family? Was that your experience? Yeah, and I, I think that's a fairly common South African experience. I mean, for a lot of people, you don't question it. You, you simply reflect what your family is. And if your family has taught you that this is the way things are, you continue that, which, which is how really the system was embedded and perpetuated. Um, but a lot of people are at odds with their families for, for various reasons. Um, and I guess South Africa, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of people will act out in their adolescence, their rebellion. Um, you either submit to your family or you rebel against them. Um, but I guess in South Africa, it takes on a uniquely political dimension. Mm. You... you part of your anger against your parents isn't just because you're not allowed to go out on a Saturday night, it's because you, you guys lied. You told me stuff was okay that really isn't, and now I have to find my way on my own. I mean, I'm not speaking entirely for myself in that little yeah. monologue. That's, that's sort of the process you go through. And is that why you use this family as a lens through which to perceive the bigger political backdrop? Or was the political aspect of this book just something that happened? In a, in a certain, I mean, 
looking at it now, it's, it's inseparable, really. I mean, and I do think families are the nation, in a way. Um, and that's probably true everywhere. Um, but in building the book up, my, my real first concern was with the family. I thought, well, you know, I can, I can tell the story of this family with their personal travails and so on. But, you know, in, in South Africa, personal travails are very often part of larger ones. Um, but once I decided on this format, the four funerals, um, I realized that if you spaced them out, put each one in a different decade, that um, in the same way that you could register the changes that individuals in the family were undergoing as time goes on, um, and that the family itself was undergoing, you, you could show how the nation was changing and evolving mm. too. Um, but really, that was the last consideration I arrived at, not the first one. Um, and I'm still a little surprised that so many people read it the other way around, as if this is a, you know, a, a lot of people think of it as a political novel. I don't. I think of it as, as um, a novel that takes cognizance of history, put it that way. Yeah. Do you think that if someone sets out to write a political novel, they're doing fiction a disservice, or the novel itself a disservice? Uh, I wouldn't put it that strongly, because I think there are people who do it quite well, certainly better than I can, but you, you have to be, um, you know, like Nadine Gordimer, I think, is a good example, and um, I, I think a lot of her, I mean, some of the novels for me, especially the later ones, kind of fall down because they're so weighted and freighted with politics, but some of the earlier novels quite successfully straddle, um, you know, the gap between the personal and the political. But she believed, and I think you, you have to believe it if you want to be a real po political novelist in that sense, she believed that everything is political, um, that every decision, um, every, every kind of move you make is political. I don't, or perhaps don't want to see it that way. I mean, I think politics is inescapable, actually. History, rather, is inescapable. Uh, for, for each of us, um, but that ultimately it's one aspect of the reality that uh, we live through, not, not its totality. Mm. Um, and, you know, there, there are spaces in which perhaps history doesn't enter in. I'm incredibly struck by what you said earlier about Amor and Anton being two sides of your psyche. So Amor, whose name literally means love, is this innocent, but also incredibly good central figure. Anton is someone who wastes his potential, who ends up drinking rather too much and trying to finish this novel because he says at one point, if I leave the novel behind and the rest of my life has been a failure, at least I have the novel. It sort of redeems me. It's part of me that lasts. Is that how you feel? <laughs> Probably. Um... <laughs> You know, I do, I do a few things well, but um, it is simply a fact that if you keep, keep at the same craft over and over, you're going to get better at it. Um, and this is the one thing that I've obsessively wanted to do since I was very young, um, long before my first book was published, in fact. So by now, I think I've learned a thing or two. But it's also sort of ingrained into my psyche in, in, in the sense that um, there's a probably superstitious part of me that, that thinks um, as long as I'm writing, I won't die. 
Mm. Um, and I know that sounds foolish, but actually I've heard other, I've heard other writers say the same thing. I know Gabriel Garcia Marquez um, had a phobia about flying, and I read an interview with him where he confessed that he worked on aeroplanes because he believed that if he was working, the aeroplane wouldn't crash. Oh, gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> I, yes, I don't think he was correct, but I... <laughs> 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 well, maybe he was, because none of the aeroplanes did crash with him on it, so who knows. Um, can you tell us the story of the yoga splits? I'm sorry to do this to you, but we were chatting <laughs> beforehand, but it ties in so nicely with what you've been saying about working at your craft. Ah, okay. I, I, I made a, an admission to Elizabeth uh, backstage, because we have a shared interest in yoga, and she asked me um, what was the yoga pose I'm most proud of being able to do. And I said, but I, I want to preface it with what I said to her, that I cannot do this anymore. There was a time when I could do the splits back and front. And um, I wish I could demonstrate it for you today. <laughs> it would be a case of tear along the dotted line. I think. <laughs> but you built up to it day after day. You got lower and lower to the ground. Well, that's sort of the principle of yoga. And actually, yes. yoga, in a funny way, does help with your writing because it's, it's about repeating... It's about repeating the same exercise, trying to build up a particular state of mind, um, and that you do just push the frontier a little bit every time. I mean, I, I do Iyengar yoga, um, and Iyengar, I think, I think I'm quoting him correctly, says, stretching is infinite. You, you, yes. you can continue and continue. I wonder if you're the only Booker Prize winner who has ever been able to do the splits. We'll have to. I feel like someone in the Hay audience would know the answer to that. <laughs> I'm sure Margaret Atwood can do it. Oh, yes. I think you're so right. <laughs> um, I would love to talk to you a bit about your style in The Promise. I adore your prose in this book. It is, it's been compared to modernism, which is why I'm wearing my Virginia Woolf t-shirt today. Um, but I know we've spoken in the past about it being quite cinematic in tone, and you do this thing where you swerve so effortlessly and elegantly between different people's perspectives and perceptions, at one point even inhabiting a toilet in the Swart family home so that we can sort of see all the things that go through it. It was, it was brilliant. That sounds gross, but it wasn't. It was poetic. <laughs> How did that style come to you? Um, I'd, begun, I'd begun the book um, and was feeling frustrated with the limitations of um, the third-person voice. And I fortuitously was offered the chance to do a, a couple of drafts of a film script. And for various reasons, it was a, a job I wanted and needed to do. So I set my book aside and I, I did the film script. And when I came back to the novel, um, in a, one of those sort of inspirational flashes that sometimes very, very seldom the literary gods sort of drop into your lap, I suddenly saw that it was possible to approach the narrative um, in the same way that um, I had approached writing the script, which is to say that the narrator of the book, instead of being this invisible and stable um, point from which everything gets related, could in fact work like a camera. Mm. So you, you could cut, as it were, from one point of view to another. Um, and that you, you could also um, 
come up very, very close to a particular moment or a detail, and also at other moments pull right, right back and give a, you know, a, a perspective and a scale to human events that made them seem quite small. Um, and I really loved the range that that opened up, because it's not only um, a physical range of perspectives, it's a range of tones. Mm. So if, if you're looking at human events from very far away, um, the tone generally becomes quite cold, detached. What, at least one of my editors called it cruel at moments. Wow. But I like to think I compensate for that, you know, when, when I, as it were, come for an extreme close-up on characters and um, then, of course, you see the full humanity of somebody mm -hmm. when, when you're looking at their face. And you can do more than look at their face um, if you're writing a novel because what, what you can do with narrative that you can never do in cinema is, is travel into people. So at, at those very close-up, intimate moments, I sometimes allowed the voice to fall into the character and speak from them. So it does lapse at moments into a, a first-person voice, which is as intimate as one can get, narratively speaking. Um, so I saw that as one extreme end of the range and, you know, the, the kind of almost inhuman detachment as, as the other end of it. Mm. And you don't just go into their minds, you go into their bodies as well, don't you? That, I mean, you don't shy away from bodily functions. Is that partly because you want to remind us of these individuals' humanity? Well, you know, as I, um, as I say, the book for me is about, and, and I say it's for me because I don't think it necessarily has to be that for readers. I think there's certain subjects that you need to make clear to the reader we're looking at, such as this is about white South Africa, for example, and changes and so on. But the, the kind of buried subject of it is time and the passage of time. You know, and for each of us navigating our little journey through time, the final terminus of that journey is, a, is death. It's a funeral. And this is a book punctuated by funerals. Of course, it's not a book about death, but it's about the process of getting there, which is to say life, human life. Um, most of us would like to forget that we, you know, we, we get through our lives in a body. Um, and a sentence that kept coming back to me, actually, um, a bit anomalously maybe, but uh, was, was something I'd picked up from um, Christopher Hitchens's book about his own dying, uh, mortality, where he says, I don't have a body, I am a body. Um, and I wanted to approach it from that point of view. Um, so, you know, if people's physicality is very noticeable, as yeah. you point out. I mean, I think some people find it hard to deal with. But in fact, we can't get away from our own physicality. And, you know, it seems strange to me that novels don't take more cognizance of the fact that we go to the toilet every day. <laughs> so there are a lot of toilet scenes here, which some people sort of, you know, flinch I from. I love them. It's a, it's a daily truth, Elizabeth. Yes, it is. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, it's not that I want to rub anyone's face in this daily truth, but I also <laughs> don't want to pretend it's not there, not true. Um, so, yeah, f physicality and it's slow decline are very much part of the language of the book. I'm aware that at several junctures you've said what some people have criticised you for in this book, 
Are you sensitive to criticism? Much less so these days. And, and, and I have to say that's one of the beneficial effects of getting older, is that you really give less of a damn what people think of you. Um, which is freeing in a personal sense, of course, but it's also freeing stylistically. Mm -hmm. um, writers may not even be consciously aware of it, but I think a lot of how you present yourself um, stylistically on the page is governed by how you want to be perceived or how far you're prepared to go in, in putting yourself out there. And if you're prepared to drop your inhibitions around that, stylistically you can go to areas that perhaps when you're younger you might refrain from going. I love that. Now, there is one character into whose mind we do not sink, and that's Salome, the black maid. Why did you make that choice? Yeah, this, um, this is a point on which um, a lot of people have commented. Um, I could say why I think you've made it, and then you could agree or disagree. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd, like to put this, I'd like to put this properly, because I think it's yeah. actually quite a delicate um, matter. I wanted to write... I mean, the, the book, as I, as I have said several times, is about white South Africa, um, how white South Africans function. And I want to say again, not especially racist people, not especially noble people. And that middle zone of people, which is the one that I'm most familiar with, just from my own upbringing. It's just part of their psyche, and certainly was true of me for many, many years, that imaginatively, perceptively, you, you don't notice the interior lives of your fellow black South Africans in the way that you do other white South Africans. Mm -hmm. And in a, it, it's, not even, um, it's not even about... Um, yeah, it's not an act of acting out of racism. It's, it's a kind of failure of imagination. You, you don't go there. You don't see it. You don't perceive it. And in a certain sense, apartheid required that blunting of the imagination in order to function. Because if you do make that imaginative leap, the system suddenly becomes intolerable. Mm. So I, I decided that I, I would focus intensely on the white South Africans in all their muddy and complicated um, interiority, but that I would not travel past the threshold of where their imaginations would not go. So I didn't want to, to go into the interior of the black characters any more than the white characters would see them. But I didn't want to just do that and um, in, in, a, in a way that made it non-problematic. I, I wanted to do it in a way that made the reader uncomfortable. Um, so, yes, yeah, Salome in many ways is the central character in the book. I mean, the promise is made to her, but in other ways, she's, she's just present in, in exactly the way that such a person is present in a domestic sense in South Africa, in almost every scene, you know, cleaning the furniture, cleaning the floor, raising the children, doing all these kind of vital, vital tasks on behalf of a family, and yet not really being noticed, not being... Yeah, not being given a, a life imaginatively. Um, and there, you, you can't just do that and not comment on it. So I, uh, I, I did think while I was writing that, I mean, I had to bring that to some kind of point. 
Uh, and I did think while I was writing that the point I might bring it to is a moment where actually I, I did release her inner life in a, in a kind of a flood uh, of detail, thoughts, feelings. Um, but then I, I decided not to. I decided to let the hopefully uncomfortable sense of her blankness um, last all the way through, but that I, the point that I would drive home uh, comes right towards the end of the book where the narrator has one of those moments where he or she, whatever the gender of this narrator, uh, wheels around and, as it were, points out of the page at the reader and says, if you, if you didn't know this about Salome, perhaps it's because you didn't want to know, you didn't care to ask. And I would hope that that's a point that um, draws blood, at mm. least with certain readers. Thanks for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. You can catch the rest of Damon's event by subscribing to our Hay Player at hayfestival.org forward slash hayplayer. Next week, I'll be with author and reporter Rebecca Mead. We'll be chatting about her love of swimming, moving from the States to the UK and profiling Margaret Atwood. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend about us or give it a rating. This podcast was hosted by me, Poppy Evans, and produced by Shabie Najaro Achanith. I'll see you next Thursday.